All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. I want to begin with a story. Does everyone have a copy or a book? Yes. You guys are all settled? Okay. I want to begin with a story. So there's a fellow driving in Tennessee. I don't know the Tennessee accent. Someone give me, someone, someone help me. I start off with Tennessee accent. Y'all ain't from around here now. Y'all ain't from around. So he's driving down the country roads of Tennessee and he's, this is a terrible attempt. And he sees, he sees a sign. I'm just going to segue back into normal, normal speak. He sees a sign that says, you ready for this? Talking dog for sale. Four words. Four words that are very... Talking dog for sale. You see many things in the South. But this, this, this deserves pulling over to the side of the road and seeing what's going on. It's outside of a house. He goes, knocks on the door. Knocks on the door. A fellow opens up. He says, talking dog for sale. Yeah, you have the right place. He says, really? Talking dog for sale. He's like, absolutely. We got a talking dog in the back. He's in the backyard. Check him out for yourself. Is this okay? Is this okay? I'm like, all right. He goes out there. He says, you, he sees a dog, a lab. He says, you the talking dog? He's like, yes, I am, sir. He says, says what? You're talking dog? What? Like, what's your story? Like, what's your deal? He's like, well, I discovered, again, just like way back. He said, well, I discovered this gift that I had when I was a young pup. And it was, it's an amazing gift. And I decided to, uh, to, to tell the government. They hooked me up with the CIA. I went overseas on missions. What I would do is I would infiltrate high-level government offices. They would think I'm an innocent dog. Meanwhile, I'm reporting back to our government. I was a spy for the U.S. government for the CIA. The guy's like, it's crazy. And he's like, yeah, and then when I got a little bit older, I was tired of traveling, so I moved back home, and I worked in the airport, security. Again, if there was somebody suspicious, I would trail them, pick up my conversation. Throughout my career in public service, he's telling this fellow, I amassed many, many medals and many awards because of all my efforts on behalf of the American people. Because it's crazy, this is wild. Then he says, then he says to the fellow, and then I got a little bit older, I decided to retire, settle down, get married, have, uh, have a lot of kids, you know, big litter, I guess they call it litter, yeah, a big litter, and that's it, retired. Yeah, it's like, this is, I've never seen anything like this. He goes into the house, he asks the guy, how much for the talking dog? He says, ten bucks. Ten dollars for the talking dog? Are you out of your, only ten dollars? Man says, oh, he told you some stories? He made that up. None of that is true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> a creative lying talking dog. Still probably worth more than ten bucks, but all right. Try to shut him up. That's the problem. That's the problem. Take him. Take. Him. I'll pay you ten bucks. All right. But he, uh, so, so this is exactly where I want to go. This is exactly where we want to go with this. And that is that in today's day and age, you know. I'm sure you've all heard, we're all familiar with this, with this phrase, the information age. Right, we're in the information age, information is freely accessible, readily accessible, anywhere, everywhere, online. Imagine, you can have a Torah class, streaming live from Atlanta around the world. What? Oh, that'll never happen. <laughs> that'll never happen. All right? I feel like George Jetson here. Here's the point. I would venture to say that in addition to us, to our generation, our era, our age being the information age... We're also the communication age. And that's another phrase that we have. We're the communication age. We're 
everyone is instantly connected. Now, because of that, I mean, think about it. Think about it. You can have a Facebook phone. Facebook phone. Just came out a few weeks ago. Facebook phone. You can text message. You can Skype. You can Google Hangout. Shout out to Google Hangout right now, right? You, could, you can YouTube. We're on Google Hangout right now. It's broadcasting. Um, you can, what else can you do? How else do we communicate? Tweet. Tweet? Good. Can't forget about Twitter. LinkedIn. Good. You can get poked on Facebook. You can get uh, tweeted on Twitter, retweeted, huh? Instagram. Oh, right. Pinterest. Oh, thank you. Right. Pinterest. Instagram. That's right. You can have. Here's the point. We're more connected than ever, and part of that helps us learn information, right? Because we're connected, so you can gain information. But a lot of it is just about communication. Here's the point. In today's day and age, we value those that are connected. We value those that that have. You know, I've, I, I saw recently there was like a, a website that that was created where you can type in your name, your information. You can plug in your. You give them your Facebook credentials, your Twitter password, and all that stuff, and they'll tell you what your social internet score is. They'll like rank you. They'll tell you like how plugged in you are, how popular you are, how like with it you are. And there's it's a it's a. Well, so there's so here's the thing. Here's the thing, especially especially with especially with the young whippersnappers out there. So this is, from what they tell me, this is all the rage. <laughs> so here's the point. It's that in our genera- our generation, the emerging generation, etc. There is a prime. There's a, a huge value put on uh, communication, social interaction, and having your voice be broadcast. And again, think about, think about in this context, there's never been a time in human history where a single voice could have such a powerful effect. In other words, you can be at home, you know, in, in your own room, and you can, you can broadcast a message literally around the world. Literally. Not figuratively, not, not, not theoretically, but practically around the world. So this is the power that we have today, and, and, and it evokes this idea of communication, of talking, of chatter. There's so much chatter. A lot of it is good, some of it is not good. But what about silence? What about silence? The class is entitled The Sound of Silence. What about silence? There's no value in silence. Some, no, wait, wait, wait. What we, we think, let me back it up, we think from the perspective, from the goggles that we put on in today's age, that there's no value in silence. Why? Because the value is how loud can you be? How much? How? How? Who's retweeting your tweets? Right? How many friends do you have on Facebook? Right? How many subscribers do you have on your YouTube channel? Subscribe at Rabbi Ari. At, right? So you have all of these, all of these um, points of access of communication. And silence gets lost in, gets lost in, the, uh, in, in the shuffle. And, and, and oftentimes we think that if somebody's silent, it means either they're just agreeing to everything or they have nothing to say. Or a combination of both. What we're going to discover tonight is the unique Jewish perspective on the sound or, more precisely, the power of silence. The transpo- transformative power of silence. So that's kind of an overview. Let's move into the Torah discussion, the specific Torah discussion. This week is a very important week. 
the Shabbos. Why? Because it is the Shabbos in which we begin the fourth book of the Torah. Bamidbar. Which is translated as in the desert. Bamidbar in the desert. I'll tell you this, it's, uh, the calendar is always arranged so that this Torah portion is read on the Shabbat immediately preceding the festival of Shavuot. As many of you know, the festival of Shavuot, which is the anniversary of God giving us the Torah at Mount Sinai, begins next week, this coming week, Tuesday night. The first day of the holiday is Wednesday, and the holiday ends Thursday at nightfall. So it's a Wednesday and Thursday holiday, with the start Tuesday night after nightfall. So every year, no matter how the calendar is organized, leap year, non-leap year, whatever, it doesn't make it early, late, it's always arranged that the Torah portion of Bamidbar, this week's Torah portion, is read on the Shabbat immediately preceding the festival of Shavuot. Why? Because there's a very strong connection between the Torah and the Midbar. What is the Midbar? Desert. The wilderness. It's a very powerful connection. More than just the basic fact that we receive the Torah in the desert, in the wilderness, there's extreme symbolism and meaning to that, to that connection. We're going to explore that in tonight's class as well. There, you know, for only being an experience that we collectively as a nation spent 40 years enduring, there's a lot of significance given to the desert. Think about it. I mean, how long have we been in America for? Long time. How long have we been in? Uh, in how long were we in Europe for? Hundreds of years. They were in the desert, in the Sinai Desert, in the de- in the wilderness between uh, between Egypt and Israel for forty years. And yet, when you look at the Torah, and again, you could tell me, well, historically, that's when it took place. So that's that gets the most play. But we know the Torah is a timeless document. And four out of five books of the Torah take place primarily in the desert. We commemorate desert experiences not only on an annual basis with, for example, the festival of Shavuot, which celebrates the giving of the Torah, or Sukkot, which celebrates the the protection that the Jews had while traveling through the desert 40 years. We celebrate, we commemorate, we mark the desert experience every single week. How? Where? Shabbat. Where in Shabbat? Shabbat is creation. Two loaves of bread, challah. Make hamotzi. Right? We say kedush on wine. Follow it with breaking bread. How many loaves do we have? We have two. Why two loaves of bread? In commemoration, what? The double portion of manna that fell, that fell from the heavens in, in the desert when the Jews were traveling. So they didn't have, you know, a kosher gourmet or a bakery with them. They didn't have that. Right? They didn't even have a Starbucks. Can you imagine? No Starbucks. They had it rough. No wonder they were complaining. <laughs> it wasn't really about going back to Egypt and not, uh, not being happy. It was really, give us Starbucks. We need it. But you know they would never start from the desert. Uh, why? Because of all the sand, which is Ah. Oh, you're killing me. All right. So you have this... You, you have this miraculous bread that therefore God sends from heaven since there's no other food. So God says, I'll hook you up with food on a daily basis, except I don't want you to go out and schlep out and collect the food and prepare the food on Shabbos, because Shabbos is a day of rest. You should already be 
As you go into Shabbos, you should have everything that you need already. So therefore, God says, you know what I'll do? On Friday, I'll give you double portion. Double portion of manna. One for today, Friday, and one for tomorrow for Shabbos. Don't try to collect on Shabbos. Don't try to collect extra. Don't try to collect less. You'll have exactly the two portions. To celebrate the double portion that helped with Shabbos, we have two loaves of, two loaves of bread, two, two challah, two chalot. So we commemorate the desert experience every single week. What's the significance of the desert? Imagine. So fine, they had two portions of this miraculous bread. Wonderful. So good for them. So I have to therefore also have two loaves of bread every Shabbos. Doesn't make sense, yeah? Okay, so Hashem gives us two portions on Friday. So why do we insist on having three? You have two Friday night, and then you've got to have two more the next day. Assuming one of them is a leftover that you didn't use Friday night. Well, the idea is that the Shabbat... No, it's a very good question. The truth is, even Friday night, back in the desert, they would have already eaten the, the, the Friday portion, or they were eating that during the day, and Shabbos, they would be eating the next portion. So it's really two distinct portions. The idea, though, is that there's a general commemoration of this miracle of the double portion, so throughout Shabbat, every time we break bread, we have the double portion as well. It's not exactly the amounts that they had. Yeah, 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 even the third meal. Now, why are there three meals on Shabbos? That's, that's derived from a different verse. A different verse. It says three times the word Hayom regarding collecting the manna, referring to Shabbos. Hayom, Hayom. Three times says Hayom. Today. Collect today, don't collect today. So, in commemoration of those three times says Hayom, so we make sure to have three meals. The third meal is uh, Shabbos afternoon toward the evening before it gets dark. All right. So, the point is that the desert is not an isolated 40-year experience, but it's something that is perpetuated. We study, certainly we study about it at length as every year as we go through the Torah. Again, four out of five books of the Torah are, are relating to the desert experience. We have um, mitzvot that we do today, or customs, traditions, laws, holidays that we have today that are all based on our existence in the desert. And the question really is, what's the big deal about the desert? Yeah, they were there. All right, they were there en route to, to Israel. So they were traveling in the desert for 40 years. What's the big deal? All right, these are some of the questions that we have. By the way, uh, we kind of spoke outside, text 1 and text 2, so we're not going to read them inside. Uh, the idea is that text 1 talks about the obligation to use two loaves of bread on Shabbat. Text 2 speaks about the fact that uh, Bamidbar is always read before the holiday of Shavuot. So, we're going to skip that, and we're just going to pick it up the next step, which is section 2. We're left with the question, what is the deeper, symbolism, uh, what is the deeper significance and, and, and symbolism of the desert? To understand this on a much deeper level, we're going to look at one of the most favorite, one, at least one of my most favorite parts of the Seder. If you had to choose your favorite part of the Seder, maybe a song, what comes to mind? Dayenu. Ah, right. How do you, how do you top Dayenu? Should we break out of Dayenu? Day, Dayenu, Day, Dayenu, Day, Dayenu, 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 Dayenu. All right. So here's the deal. Dayenu is a classic song. And what is Dayenu all about? Dayenu is very simple. Dayenu is 
where we want to acknowledge God's blessing, God's um, great kindness every step of the way. From the Exodus to going to the land of Israel and building the temple. Every step of the way. So we say, if God had only done step one for us, it would have been amazing. But not only that, He did step two and step three and step four. And every, every individual, every single act, we say, thank you. Had you done just that, it would have been enough. But wait, there's more. It's almost like an infomercial. Alright, so I want to highlight, I want to call to attention... Exactly. But wait, there's more. If you're thankful now, God will throw in an additional... Uh, an, an additional... <laughs> exactly. Um, Alright, so... Let's take a look. Let's yeah, thank you. Text number three. We're going to start with text three on page 79 in the books, on the handout. This comes straight up from the Haggadah. This is one of the Dayenus. Fred, please take it away. He had brought us before Mount Sinai and had not given us the Torah, Dayenu, it would have sufficed us. Comes along the Haggadah, author many, many years ago. The Haggadah says, had we stood before, had we stood at Mount Sinai and not received the Torah, Dayenu would have been enough. Does anybody actually agree with that? Can, can I make it? Can I give you a context with which maybe to look at this? Can I give you a... You ready? You're standing under the chuppah. Right? You're standing under the wedding canopy. Right? You're, let's say you're the bride. And you're in your wedding dress. And, and, and everyone's walking down the aisle. And now it's time... Actually, or maybe the other way around. Whatever, it doesn't make a difference. Now it's time for... The groom or the bride, whatever it is, to walk down the aisle. And everyone's looking at the door and waiting and waiting and waiting. And a minute goes by, and five minutes and ten minutes, a half an hour, an hour goes by, and then suddenly you realize you've been stood up. You've been stood up. Imagine then the bride saying, it doesn't matter if we actually went through with the wedding. As long as I stood under the chuppah, Dayenu, that's enough. Are you kidding me? Dayenu. Find that guy and kill him. Find that guy and then and, and the Tennessee style. I mean, I don't know, whatever it is. What? You're telling me Dayenu? Oh, had we only showed up. Hey, we're telling God, had you stood us up at Mount Sinai and not given us the gift that you promised us, oh, it would have been amazing. Really? That would have been enough? You would, really? You, you wouldn't have been like, like wait, what, why we're all dressed up with nowhere to go? Yeah, like, that wouldn't have been like the thought process? We would have been totally cool with that had you brought us before at Mount Sinai with the promise of the Torah and not delivered, that would be okay also. How would that be okay? Under, under, in, in which universe is that fine? There's no way that that's okay. Understand the question? Yeah. Is it a good question? So we're not going to sing that anymore. <laughs> You're going to strike that from the record. <laughs> before we pull out the red pens... And start amending the ancient text of the Haggadah. Put the red pen down, and uh, let's uh, let's um, let's explain. Well, we well, the, the place that we're going to get to is an understanding how we can indeed justify the statement of had God not given us the Torah at Mount Sinai, had we just been standing there in anticipation, we would have been standing there waiting for it, but it had not have come, it would have been, how can we understand that? We're going to get there in a second. 
the next step to understanding this puzzle is by looking at what the commentaries say. Because what we want to find out is what happened at Sinai aside from us receiving the Torah. In other words, if the only significance of Sinai is that we receive the Torah, then had we not received the Torah, we could say, well then, no Dayenu, you take, I, I take back the Dayenu. We didn't get the Torah, that was the whole point. Unless you say that there was value, that there was something that happened, something that was accomplished, some, something of value that occurred at Sinai, aside from, outside of, of receiving the Torah. Does this make sense? Let's take a look at what, what the Talmud itself says. <laughs> Talmud Tractate of Odazara, page 22b, text 4a, says the following. The spirit of impurity was lifted from the Jews when they stood before Sinai. Look at that. The spirit of impurity, and in the, in the language of the Talmud, Pascha Zuhamasam. Their impurity was lifted. What impurity? Talmud explains. It's cut out here. Here's what the Talmud says. Ever since the sin of Adam and Eve, there was an element of impurity that had been injected into the human being. In fact, without getting too graphic, it says that not only did the serpent convince Eve to sin with the tree, but there was also a sin that occurred between the snake and Eve herself. By the way, it also says that the snake was an upright creature and didn't slither on its and that was a curse that it lost its ability to stand upright. So obviously it looked different. It was, a, it was a, a different sort of creature. But the bottom line is, not only did the serpent, according to our sages, convince Adam, Eve, and then in turn Eve convinced Adam to eat of the tree, but there was also, there was also other nefarious activity happening. The Talmud said, our sages tell us that from that moment on there was... The human experience, human life was um, soiled with a certain impurity, a certain impure spirit that rested upon human beings, within human beings, etc. Says the Talmud, that spirit of impurity was lifted at Sinai. Standing at Mount Sinai, that impurity was lifted from, from the Jewish people. That's what it says. It's an amazing accomplishment. Based on this, take a look at what the Kalbo explains. Text 4b, Donna, continue. If he would have brought us before Mount Sinai, the explanation is that by standing before the mountain, we received an immense benefit, inasmuch that the impurity was removed. This means that all doubts with regard to the unity of God were banished, because we saw his kingship and immense glory in plain view. This removed all doubts from us comes along the Kalbo and he says like this, what does it mean when our sages say that there was a spirit of impurity that rested upon the human condition for all these, for, for, for two and a half thousand years, until the giving of the Torah? It means that the human being, even if the human being acknowledged that there was a creator, still that idea, the, 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 the notion of the unity of God and the absolute presence. The unity of God means that God is present in this moment. That God is not disconnected from this moment. From every moment. Every detail God is present. That awareness was a little bit out of touch for, for, for human beings. For the average human being. 
at Mount Sinai, they saw God, the revelation at Sinai. They saw God, they sensed God in a very, in a very real way. And that removed, that removed that impurity. Now, I will tell you the, the, the epilogue to this, the PS is, at the sin of the golden calf, the spirit of impurity returned. So it was a very short-lived experience, which is why today, uh, typically we're back in the same boat. But for that moment, at that moment it was lifted, comes along the Kobo and he says, that's what the Haggadah means with the Dayenu. Why the Dayenu? What are we saying? Had we, show, had we arrived at Sinai, not received the Torah, it would also have been an amazing account. Dayenu. Why? Because we didn't get stood up. Had we not received the Torah, fine, we wouldn't have the Torah. But we would have had... We could have had, we would have had the other divine experience, the divine experience, a divine revelation, even if it wasn't communicated in the form of Torah with instructions, but that experience of seeing God, that was his understanding that we would have seen God, but not, ha- but not received the document. We didn't find, so, again, it's not fine, but Dayenu, we wouldn't have received the document, but at least we would have seen God and God would have been true. And that unity of God would have been apparent and understood and real to us, and that spirit of impurity would have been removed. And for that, we can say Dayenu. Does this help a little bit? We can put it back in? Re, re unstrike it from the record? All right. Good. So it's, so it's back in. That was a close call. It's about to get in trouble. All right. Yeah. If it was removed, then how could it be. How could it get back? I mean, if it was we removed, messed up. Was it just like temporarily removed? It was removed, and then it got put back on. It's like insurance. You know, you take off the plan, you put it back on. Like, can you put it back on? Yeah, retroactively. Yeah, we can even do that. No, I'm not saying it was retroactive. I'm saying is that it, it was taken away, and then they 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 earned it. Yeah. They. What does it mean that they sin with the golden calf? That means that God's unity, God's presence, the oneness of God. They said, "All right, see you later. We're serving a calf." It's basically what happened, more or less. Right, so they brought it back on themselves. Here's the point. The point is, back by popular demand. <laughs> it's a revival, good old southern revival. So here's um, here's the first answer that we have: that there was this uh, this 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 awareness and and the the, the remove the removal of uh, of the impurity that was accomplished at Sinai, even had Torah not been given. All right, that's answer number one. Other answers are, are given. I'm going to cite a few. Um, some commentaries explain that aside from the Torah that they got, the Ten Commandments and the other teachings of the Torah that God gave to Moses on the mountain, aside from that, they also received mystical insights and teachings that were then passed. So I guess the idea could be that, uh, that they had, had we not received the Torah, but just have been privy to these types of, of mystical experiences, Dayenu, that also would have been enough. There's another idea um, that some say about the Dayenu, that it doesn't mean had we stood at Sinai and not received any of Torah. Had we not received the whole Torah. Had we just gotten like the Reader's Digest abridged version. Large print. Large print, right? (laughs) Dayenu, that would have been enough as well. In other words, it's... It doesn't mean how we not received any of the Torah. Because if any of the Torah, we didn't receive any Torah, then maybe we shouldn't say Dayenu. But it means that we not received the whole Torah, just some of it, we would have said Dayenu. But God, not only, not only was God satisfied with giving us, let's say, the Ten Commandments and other teachings that He gave us on it, but He gave us everything. Wow, now that's a big accomplishment. But even without it, we would have said Dayenu. All of these are several answers, and there are more that are given to explain why in the Haggadah we say Dayenu, even though... 
even had the Torah not been given. But I want to share with you a different explanation. Based on Rashi. Based on Rashi commenting on the Torah's description of Mount Sinai. Now, of, of the Sinai experience of the giving of the Torah. I want you to open up the Chumash. And I'll tell you the page in a second. It's going to be page 465, if memory serves me correctly. 465 it is. Alright, Steve, take it away. 465, where it says Jewish people camp by Mount Sinai. Right there at the bottom, bottom half of the translation, like that bottom paragraph right there. On the, on the first day, the third month after the children of Israel's departure from Egypt, they arrived at the desert of Sinai. They had departed from Rapidim, doing Chuba, and they arrived at the desert of Sinai doing Chuba. They encamped in the desert. Israel encamped there, toward the east side of the mountain, in a state of total unity. As if they were one single person with one heart. The translation here that, that, that we just read is the, the parentheses include Rashi's commentary. <laughs> Rashi is the one who points out, based on, he doesn't, it's not an original thought, it's, it's an ancient teaching, it's, it's, it's transcribed originally in the Mechilta. Mechilta is a Midrashic uh, book on, on, the, on the book of Exodus. The Mechilta says, as follows. It points out a nuance in the verse. It says, Vayis'u mirfidim. Vayis'u, the vav at the end means they. The vav at the beginning means and, but vav at the end means they. Vayis'u, they traveled. Mirfidim, from mirfidim. Vayavau, and they, and they came. They came. Midbar Sinai, the desert of Sinai. Vayachanu, and they encamped. by Midbar in the desert. Vayichan sham Yisrael negarahar. And Israel, he camped there opposite the mountain. Suddenly, it doesn't say Vayachanu. It's Vayisu, Vayavau, Vayachanu. Again, remember the U at the end means they. Then it says Vayichan. Two words before it says Vayachanu. Plural. Vayichan. Vayichan Sham Israel. Israel in the singular uh, 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 resided there. Negadahar opposite the mountain. Comes along the Mechilta and says Vayichan Sham. What does that mean? Vayichan Sham? He dwelt there. He rested there. Ki'ish echad echad. Like one man with one heart. They rested. They, when, in that encampment, that, when they stopped there opposite the mountain, they were ki'ish echad echad. Like one man with one heart. They were as one. They weren't divided. We're going to read this inside now. Alright, let's take a look. Take a look at text... Well, we read text 5a in the context in the Chumash itself. Text 5b, Rashi's commentary. Rini, take it away. This is a key, key Rashi right here. Again, Rashi gets it based on the Mechilta. Rashi says, not only is the Torah telling us that here they were in, in a unity, but Rashi says... FYI, the implication is that every other time they encamped, they were bickering. There was strife, they were complaining, there was drama, whether it was against the leadership, maybe against themselves, inter-Israelite fighting. But here, one man, one heart, total unity. And here's the million dollar question. What was it about this? 
What was it about this encampment? What was it about this, this singular experience that evoked with them this type of uh, this type of unity? What was it? What was it? So what we need to do is we need to find clues from the Torah to figure out what happened that day. Because every other time they, 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 they stopped somewhere, they were fighting. It's like, imagine you're on a road trip with your kids, right? Or with the grandkids. You're driving, get out of the car. Oh, you get for a second pregnancy. There's always fighting. This time they stopped, road trip. They stopped. Peace and quiet. Amazing. What, was, what happened? So what we need to do is we need to piece this together. We need to do some forensic uh, biblical studies. I don't know if forensic is the right term, but why not? Yeah, forensic? Okay. Some forensic uh, bibliography. All right. <laughs> what happened that day? So we see what happened on the first day. We just read, right? Page 465. They encamped there. They encamped there in unity. All right. What happens the next day? What happens the next day? Um, let's continue 467. I'm trying to, you want to take it away? 467, in the Chumash, we're back in the Chumash, where it says, God chooses the Jewish people as His own. Moshe ascended to God on the second day of the month, early in the morning. God called to him from the mountain, saying, You should say the following to the house of Yaakov, i.e. the women, and tell the same thing in a more explicit manner, stressing the punishments and fine details. The sons of Israel, I mean the men. <laughs> Those men need a little bit more, uh, <laughs> a little more detail, a little bit more, pun- a little more consequences. <laughs> All right, continue. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I gathered you together in a short period of time, and I protected you through the angel of God, as if you were carried on eagles' wings, and I brought you to my service. Now, if you listen to me and keep my covenant through observing. Torah, you will be a precious treasure to me among all my peoples. For the whole earth is mine, and yet the other nations are like nothing to me. You shall be to me a kingdom of ministers and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel, no more and no less. Moshe returned and summoned the elders of Israel and placed before them all these words that God had commanded him. All right, so let's stop right here, because this goes, goes on for a little while, and I just wanted to read this inside, just so you see what's going on here. Basically, the Torah, in preparation for the Ten Commandments, which if you continue turning the page, two more pages on page 470 and 471, in the Chumash, if you just turn two pages, you'll see the appearance of the Ten Commandments. The Torah is describing what happens in the days preceding the giving of the Torah at Sinai, which happened, there's a dispute amongst the Talmudic sages, whether it was the 6th of Sivan or the 7th. Either way, we, we typically celebrate, we, we celebrate on the 6th of Sivan and the 7th, we have a two-day holiday. Either way, the Torah tells us that on the first day they encamped, and the second day God said, you are to me a kingdom of, of priests, a holy nation. Then the third day, other more things happen. The, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, all of these days are days of preparation. And something happens on the days. Comes on the Talmud, and again we can read it inside, but the Talmud in text 6a kind of uh, just clarifies the timeline here. So, um, Howard, take it away, 6a, page 81. Here's again the timeline of what happened each day in preparation for the Sinai experience. Rosh Hodesh was established on Monday, 
scripture transmitted to them God's words. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. On Wednesday, Moshe informed them of the directive to set boundaries. And on Thursday, they separated themselves from their wives. There was this idea of a few days of separation um, from marital intimacy before the before the given the Torah at Sinai, um, and then on Friday, which was the day before, they received the Torah on Shabbos. So Friday, there were also more preparations that were made. So every single day, um, they built an altar on Friday, and the day before, they built an altar for God. Every day, there was a preparation that was done. Every day, they did something, except. The Torah tells us things that were done every single day, except for the first day of Rosh Chodesh, the day that they first encamped in the Sinai mm-hmm. Desert. We don't find any explicit mention in the Torah as far as what happens that day. The second day, God says, do this, do that. Moshe tells the people, the people say, yeah, we'll do it. There's a lot of stuff that happens on the other days. When we read through the rest of the narrative, the Talmud fills in some details, stuff happened. What happened on the first day? That's Sunday. Uh, or was it Monday? It was Monday, right? Rosh Chodesh was Monday. What happened that Monday? Rosh Chodesh, the first day they arrived in the Sinai Desert. Comes along the Talmud, text 6b. You know how we're continuing with this also? Because it's, uh, it's the sister text of 6a. On Monday, the day of their arrival, he did not speak to them. Not a thing due to their exhaustion from the Says the Talmud, Moshe didn't give them any commandments on Monday. That was travel day. So travel day, that's the day they landed in the site, landed, rested, stopped, right? Put down their bags, pitched a tent. Um, in the Sinai Desert, opposite the mountain, Mount Sinai, nothing happened that day, they had a day off. Okay? And that's the way the Talmud was always learned, studied for years. Talmud dates back 1,500, years ago. For years, that's how it was studied. The good thing about asking a question is that it unlocks a deeper perspective. So I'll ask a question. Can we really conceive that they were so tired from the journey that Moshe didn't want to burden them with, with a commandment? But they were really that tired? First of all, the journey from Rafidim, the journey to, to the Sinai Desert wasn't that long. We know it wasn't that long. Geographically, it wasn't that long. Number one. Number two... We can imagine how excited they were to be there. Imagine, right? Imagine you take the family to an amusement park, to uh, Six Flags or whatever it is, to an amusement park, or to a vacation spot. And they travel, and it's, it's, it's weird hours, and everyone's tired. But you get there, right? Especially the kids. What, they're like, oh, we'll just take the day off tomorrow. We'll, we'll, we'll be all fresh. Are you kidding me? They're out the door. It's like, well, okay, guys, let's go out. And you're like, oh, they're running out in the parking lot. Like, that's it. They're out. They're ready to go. Why? Because they're excited. So you can ima- imagine the Jews in the desert traveling from Egypt, finally arriving at, at this point. That the, they, see the, they see the mountain right in front of them, the mountain that they know that they're going to receive the Torah. They, by the way, they knew that they were going to get the Torah already in Egypt. God said, I'm taking you out of Egypt. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me on the mountain. He says on the mountain. Right? They knew that there was going to be this experience at Sinai. On the mountain, revelation, and getting the law of the covenant. They knew, they knew about this. So they arrived there. So the Talmud tells us, the Talmud would have us believe that Moses, Moshe didn't burden them with anything. They didn't really do anything that day. It was a day off because they were tired. They were tired. Why were they tired physically? And even emotionally, spiritually, there's no way they could have been tired. We'd be excited about it. 
it's compounded by the fact that they were counting each day. We know they were counting each day. How do we know this? Because we do it. And we don't do it because they did it. It's not like we started it. Text number 7. Cece, take it away, page 82. When Moses told the Jews, you will serve God on that mountain, they responded, Moses, our teacher, when will we be privileged with this service? When Moses told them, after 50 days, each person conducted a personal countdown. To commemorate this, our sages established the mix-up of counting the Omer, after the destruction of the temple. Although we no longer offer sacrifices nor bring the Omer, we still count down the days to celebrating the Torah, as the Jews counted at that time. So to, to emulate, to replicate their anticipation of the Torah at, that, at the first time, so every year we also count the Omer from the second day of Passover on, every day. We, every night we count, every day is, is, is counted. We're anticipating the giving of the Torah once again, on a spiritual level. But they, they experienced it on a physical level. And they knew, again, they knew what was going on. That's why they counted. Can you imagine? They finally arrive. They're counting, they're counting, they're counting. They're counting for about six weeks. During the final week, they arrive at the destination. This is going to be it. Six days from now, game time. It's going to be revelation on, baby. So what, they're going to be like, oh, we're too tired to do anything today? How is that? It doesn't make sense. Comes along Jewish mysticism. Comes along Hasidus. And this is, a, this is actually a, an idea that the Lubavitcher Rebbe taught um, based on the mystical tradition. But he, uh, he really focused in on this idea. He says as follows. Let's, let's take a look at why is it Getting back to our, our other question, why is it indeed that there was no fighting when they arrived at Mount Sinai? When they arrived that first day, Rosh Chodesh Sivan, the first of Sivan. Why was there no fighting? Huh? They were tired. <laughs> they were exhausted. Too much fighting. But why weren't they complaining? All right. So here, yeah. They were blessed all but what is it? So... One way to look at it is thinking about it from our own, from our own perspective. You know, what is it that... I was thinking about an example before, like a real-life example that, that, that illustrates this. The best one I could think of was, again, using a wedding. We use the idea of being stood up at a wedding, God forbid. But now we're going to use another idea of a wedding. Imagine a family. Lots of people in the family and lots of energy in the family. And so there's, there's drama. And there's a wedding coming up in the family. And what do you think? That, that, that lessens the drama or that increases the drama? Oh, baby. Now it's like, wait, where are we doing this? Who's, who's calling the shots and the flowers and the dress? Who's picking the color of the dress? The red and new and all that stuff. Okay, now it's like, whoo, it's like, it's going, it's going crazy. Yeah, well, no, hopefully everyone's invited. But even with the invite, it's like, oh, I'm sitting there. Who's choosing the music? Whatever it is, everyone's getting all... Because again, it's tight knit and it's like high energy. So th- this is the drama that ensues. But imagine when the wedding is actually, again, this is ideally, okay, your mileage may vary how this plays out in real life, but this is in the, in, in the safety of this example, imagine that as the wedding draws close and as it becomes a reality and as the bride and groom arrive, arrive on set, if you will, suddenly everyone's all of the, the, the petty details 
oh, I'm upset at you because you didn't let me choose this or do that or have that honor. Or do. Yeah. All of that is forgotten in the moment because everyone gets swept up in the moment itself. Because there's a, there's a greater moment at stake here. Now, this is ideally. It could be that even throughout, people are fighting because that's, again, human nature can pull that off also. But a human being is a very a tricky thing. But it's possible that even though there was fighting, and there, fighting, there, was, there were these, uh, right, let me use the, 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 the phraseology of Rashi, complaints and strife, but that ceases when the wedding is actually about to happen. It's, it's, it, it, it's quieter. Why? Because everyone's moving to a deeper place. Because it's not about me, it's not about you. And at the end of the day, who chose the color of the dresses and I wanted pink and you wanted rose and now, maybe that's the same. I wanted whatever it was. I wanted this, you wanted that. And I, you always get your way and I never get it. I'm upset at you. In a bigger moment, we sometimes realize that those smaller things are insignificant. And so what is the key? What is a key? What is a big key to unity, interpersonal unity amongst family? Because again, the Jewish people is a family. We are family. Not only because my Pittsburgh Pirates in the 80s I used to be the theme song before I knew that because I was still too young. But also because we are a family. Before we were Am Yisrael, what were we? Help me out here. Before we were Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, we were B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. We're a family first. Twelve tribes, who were they? Brothers. We're a family, and families sometimes fight. But when families get together for a simcha, they can also fight. But when families get together, and the simcha is in penance, it's right here. We finally arrived, hopefully. Hopefully the strife, and the complaints, and the bickering... Stops because you get lost in the bigger... Because you take a step back, you, you take a step deeper back, whatever, whatever direction you're taking a step, and you realize there's something bigger here, bigger here than the petty little quibbles and, 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 and feuds and faribles that we have. It's like that thing that cares about that. It's insignificant. Everyone is filled with love for the bride and groom and with joy, with tears of joy that who can, who can stand there and fight at this time? And ideally, right? This is how our sages explain, how the Rebbe explains what happened at Sinai. What does that mean? To break it down. What it means is like this. When we stand in a place of ego, when we stand in a place of, well, this is what I want, and this is how I think, and this is what should be done, and this is, and you're wrong, and then there are fights. So when we stand in more the external expression and we, we project ourselves, every time we project ourselves, it could be projecting ourselves distinct, distinct from some, how someone else projects themselves within the same family. I project myself that way, this is my opinion, you project your opinion, and now we're fighting. When does the fighting stop? When we stop projecting our opinions. And we're caught up in something deeper. When we take a step back and we're awed by something... So we move, in a, we move within, we withdraw to a deeper place. So we're not about spouting our ideas and our opinions that are at odds with the other, but we're about taking in something higher. That's the power of silence. Remember we were speaking about silence before. Projection is my ideas, my philosophy, my theories. Right? That's projection. Speaking is how I think. And that, may be, that might be different than how you think. And if I'm very opinionated and you're very opinionated, guess what? 
We're going to fight. And typically in family, everyone feels comfortable to be very opinionated to each other. So I have my opinion, and I'll tell it to you, and you'll tell me your opinion. And boom, next thing you know, there's a feud. Family feud, and not the kind that you win money. Right. I don't know if they say you had to do that at family feud. Maybe that's a different show. Anyway, so here's the point. When you have silence, when you have speaking, when you have the chatter, there might be feuds. When you have the silence, the silence signifies that people are taking in or take they are taken they are taken by the experience they're silent there's nothing to say you're in the desert you finally arrive you you see that majestic mountain in front of you you know this is where the revelation to take place what can you say well we're fighting now we're not fighting we're awed by this moment we're awed by the moment now you have silence so this is how the Rebbe explains <coughs> let's take a look let's read it in, in the Rebbe's own words page 84 text 8 um, sorry take it away this is what the Talmud means when it says Moses said absolutely nothing because of the doctrine of the journey the journey was a spiritual journey that all Jews from Moses until the simplest Jews should be united thus it means exhaustion in a positive sense a weakness and Weakness still sounds like a negative thing. But weakness in the sense of I'm not... If projection, if me taking a stance is strength, then yeah, weakness. It means me not taking a stance. But it's not from a place of weakness, from a place of a, a higher strength that's, that's beyond me. Continue. The question is, selflessness is predicated on one simple thing. Can you hear something else? Someone else? Can you hear the call of a higher calling? Right, in this context. Are you open to a higher experience? Because if at that moment of the higher experience, you're still tweeting, you're saying, this seems like what happened back in the day, I'm thinking, then you're not listening to the experience. And you're still not selfless, because you're projecting again. Selfless, selfless means being being in the moment means that you're not projecting. It says in halacha, the mivla. While you're, it's like koshering a vessel. It says the question is not to get caught in a legal wrangle when you kosher something, right? So you take. You take, a, you take a fork that's not kosher, you put it in a boiling pot of water. So what happens to the non-kosher that's in the, that's in the fork? It goes out into the water. Ask a question, right? Because you, yeah, you, you got a Talmud cup, you got a head for the Talmud, so you ask a question, what's the obvious question? If you koshered it and the, and the non-kosher went into the water, what's going to happen? What about the pot? What else? It goes right back in! Goes right back in the fork. Set the fork in. Imagine, so goes right back in. So what do we accomplish? Right? It's like, no. I got an encore. I heard, I heard the applause. I just decided to do it. So says Halacha says, I did the pala la While it's giving out, it's it works one way. If it's giving out, then it's not taking in. 
It's like one of those one-way valve things. It's like it only gives out, and it's not taking in. So that's it. So you don't have to worry about it reabsorbing the, uh, the treif, the non-kosher. What does that mean, spiritually? It means if you're talking, you can't be listening. Straight up. If you're talking, and you're projecting, and you're egoing, you're not listening, you're not being selfless, you're not, being, you're not, you're not, you're not experiencing the moment. You're talking about the moment, you're not experiencing the moment. So, with all due respect to live bloggers, thank God there were no live bloggers at signing, otherwise we might have missed the message. Right? They're too busy. I mean, it's like, what does it mean? I don't know. This is what I think it means. It's not about what you think it means. This is why, by the way, the desert is the best, the best platform for receiving the Torah. Why? Because what is a desert if not a very selfless place? A place that doesn't exude its own personality. The desert doesn't say, look at me, I'm grand, I'm huge. Look. The desert says, I'm flat. But it's the flatness itself that, that opens up when you're in a desert. When you look out at the desert and you see infinite desert, it's the flat itself that evokes the infinite. It's the humility itself. It's that I'm, I don't have to. T- I can listen. I can experience the moment that allows a person to really touch on their infinite ability, their infinite power to connect with something higher and to connect with each other. Which is why, in preparation for the giving of the Torah at Sinai, the first day the Rebbe says, the first day Rosh Chodesh, it's not that nothing happened. Everything happened. Simply, you learn the Talmud for fifteen hundred years. You come away with they took they took the day off. Nothing happened that day. The next day, God told them kingdom of nation, uh, kingdom of priests, holy nation. Set the borders. Don't don't get too close to the mountain. But the first day, nothing happened. Says the Rebbe, nothing happened. Guess what? Nothing means everything. Because if nothing happened, it's a good thing. Nothing happened means that they were experiencing the moment. That's why there was no fighting, and that was the greatest preparation. For, this, for, the, for the experience at Sinai. So now we stand less than a week before Shavuot. And as, as, we've, as we've been learning, as we, every year we repeat the same idea, and, and it's not just an anniversary, but it's a reenactment on a spiritual level. We are receiving the Torah again spiritually next week on Wednesday when we, when we hear the Ten Commandments. So we have like under a week to prepare for this. What's the greatest preparation? It's a little bit of silence. What does that mean, a little bit of silence? That an inner sense of, I'm going to listen. I'm going to be open to the experience. I don't need to... And all jokes aside about live blogging and tweet. It's about being open to the experience. It's not about... In very simple terms. There's two ways to walk into the experience of studying Torah. Right? You open up the book and you're about to study. You can either come with all of the information that you already know, and then you try to filter. We've discussed this point many times. Then you try to figure out how this new, infor- how Torah's information fits in with my with my theory in life, my pre-existing theory in life. The stuff that fits in, I say, aha, I knew I was right. The stuff that doesn't say, well, the stuff that doesn't say, well, that's an old document. It doesn't really apply. So what I'm doing is basically I'm just validating my what I what I believe in anyway. That's one model, that's one approach. That's not the true approach. The true approach is to be like a desert. What does it mean to be like a desert? You're open. You're open to truly listening and truly hearing what Torah has to tell you. To be, to be educated by Torah, to be schooled by Torah. What does Torah say? I'm open. It means the best canvas for the art of Torah is a blank canvas. If you come in with a picture 
going to take away from the from the ability of. I'm going to step in this metaphor. Bottom line is very simply. If when we're a blank canvas, when we're open, we can truly connect with the Torah and connect with Hashem. Because at the end of the day, the Torah is divine wisdom. And divine wisdom doesn't make sense that we should understand divine wisdom. How can we understand divine wisdom when we're open to the experience? We're open to the experience means we're not bringing in our own preconceptions, our own preconceived notions, our own, our own theories, but we're really open to Torah. And so my blessing uh, for all of us, myself included, is that this year, as we once again prepare... Uh, to receive the Torah, as we will once again receive the Torah, let us resolve that we should be a little bit more open this year to really, to really hearing what Torah has to say. Not to reinterpreting Torah or seeing Torah through our own lens, but really being inside, quiet, in a sense, quieting our own self, quieting our minds, quieting our, our hearts for the moment, for the experience of as we study Torah, to really be open to looking at Torah with fresh eyes, from a fresh perspective, like a, like a blank canvas. And then Torah works its magic. Torah always works its magic, but imagine if we don't uh, genetically modify it at all. Imagine if it's in its true potent, full potency doing amazing things. So the, the, the typical blessing is we should be mekabal the Torah, we should receive the Torah, but simcha with joy and in a deep, sincere inner way. So it's my blessing to all of us here that this year when we receive the Torah, we should be excited, it should be a joyous experience, and it should be an experience that uh, that remains with us for the rest of the year till next year. Thank you all for coming. Be there. Be on